heavily, I'm a clown. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin baby onesies. Today I had on a very special guest, Alex Leishman from River Financial, to talk with me and Ben Prentice about this new financial company that they are building around Bitcoin. You could call it an exchange, but they have big plans and uh, River has recently reached out to Ben and I to partner with us on sponsoring some of the products that Ben and I are working on, like WTF happened in 1971, uh, its respective newsletter, and now this podcast as well. So we were really excited to get a chance to talk with Alex publicly here on the podcast and let you guys get to know him and some of the cool things that they're working on at River. We really like their mission statements, and we really like what they're trying to do as a company, and we're really excited to work with them. So I think you guys are going to like this interview. So let's jump right into that and i will come back and talk with you guys again at the end this episode of the bitcoin echo chamber podcast is sponsored by wtf happened in 1971.com the economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971 wtf 1971 also has a merch store now you can find it at wtf dash 1971.creator-spring.com i'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out Thanks for the support. Alex, how are you doing, man? Doing very well. Good morning. Good morning. We're glad to have you on. We got both Ben Prentice and Alex here today. Alex, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Leishman? It's Leishman. Leishman. Okay. It's Scottish. Oh, interesting. I didn't want to butcher that, but I figured it was Leishman. Yeah. Ben and I have been in talks with Alex and, and some of his uh, cohorts recently you know, talking business and they're up to some interesting things over at River. Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into Bitcoin? Like what brought you to CEO of uh, Exchange in 2020? Yeah. So the story goes back actually quite a ways. I've been working on Bitcoin for a while at this point. I grew up in Maryland, uh, went to undergrad at University of Maryland, uh, College Park, where I studied aerospace engineering. My freshman year, I I started getting in, into economic ideas, free markets, read Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell, and just went down the rabbit hole after that. Ended up, you know, over the course of my college career, doing economic stuff, just in my free time, reading a lot, and read Friedrich Hayek's Denationalization of Money, which is uh, something that I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space have read. And the light bulb just went off. I mean, I just became obsessed after that with this idea of money that the government couldn't control. And really just questioning this system I had taken for granted my whole life. Like, oh, we just use dollars, I mean, why? And then really kind of seeing the absurdity of having the government have complete control and a monopoly over our, our, the money we use and a money supply and not having markets decide what we use as money. And then the logical conclusion I came to was, well, I should try to do something that helps bring about the world that I want to see, bring about a world of non-government money. By the end of my college career, my undergrad career, I, I, I kind of had this dream of building a financial institution that offered people access to money that wasn't controlled by the government, the Federal Reserve. And I had done research, seen Liberty Dollar, seen that that didn't work out too well, and had juggled a few ideas. Uh, one of them was offering people private money backed by commodities that you know, its goal was maybe tracking the CPI and having some inflation resistant currency like that. But, you know, I was only, you know, 21, 22, 
didn't really know exactly how to make something like this work uh, or how to build a business around it. And then a year after graduating, I actually discovered Bitcoin. And I was like, holy cow, this is, this is what's going to change the world. It's neither government controlled nor private company controlled. Because if the money is controlled by a private company, it kind of comes with a lot of the same problems. And then after that, it was just you know down the rabbit hole. I actually started going down the computer science rabbit hole largely because of Bitcoin. And ended up moving out to, to San Francisco at the end of 2013 and did a programming boot camp with the goal of you know, becoming an engineer working on Bitcoin stuff. And before I moved out to San Francisco, I thought that everybody out here was going to be working on Bitcoin. I thought everyone was interested in it. I thought everyone realized how big of a deal this was. When I arrived, I was shocked at how still fringe it was and how few people were really building stuff on Bitcoin. So that was my first big wake-up call that it's still not really mainstream at all. I thought from Reddit and just the popularity online that everyone in tech was interested in this. After that, I got I worked at a Bitcoin startup called MyCoin. It was kind of like Coinbase but for Taiwan, but we had an office in Palo Alto at that point. Helped build that. Uh, that was my first job in the space. Then ended up going back to grad school, actually. Did my master's at Stanford in computer science. Helped I was a teaching assistant for the first Bitcoin class there, taught by Dan Benet, who's the cryptography professor in the computer science department. And that was pretty fun. Back then, AI was the hot topic in the computer science department. And, you know, that, that class was, it was sizable, but it wasn't, you know, super hyped up. It was back in 2015. But still, there was a solid amount of interest in cryptocurrencies back then. And yeah, after that, worked in data security at Airbnb for a bit. Kind of got the big tech experience, wanted to see what it was like working at a big Silicon Valley software company, but quickly, quickly, you know, just really missed Bitcoin um, and was spending a lot of my time at Airbnb just on the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency Slack channel anyways. Uh, so decided to uh, go back full time to doing that, joined Polychain Capital, joined their investment team uh, and also was kind of doing some engineering there, helping them build some infrastructure, manage their assets, helping them find some Bitcoin venture deals, then that was what I was doing before starting River. So that's, that's kind of the long and short of it. Was it rough getting a computer science master's degree without any real formal education in the, in the field? You know, I had actually, I think I actually had a leg up because I had real experience writing software. You know, I also had an engineering degree background. So I had kind of the math backgrounds. I didn't have the theoretical computer science background. Luckily, they let you take the foundational theoretical classes in the master's program there. But I think actually it was a leg up just having had worked as a software engineer because I knew how to grind through writing code and just debugging. Whereas I think most new students struggle with that aspect of it all. So overall, I think actually going working in a field and then going back for the theoretical foundations is actually the way to do it. Was was getting a master's in computer science, was it more theory or was it more like practical application of code? It's up to you. It's really up to you how you want to take it. You can go either way. So there's all sorts of courses. You can go as theoretical as just taking courses on complexity theory and things like that. Cryptography, a lot of that is just very math heavy to very practical implementation heavy things like operating systems and systems engineering stuff. So it's really kind of what you want it to be. Hmm. And you mentioned that you were the TA for the first Bitcoin class uh, where you got your master's. What was that like? Like, what was what was the environment like? Did were people 
excited about it? Were they kind of like, what is this thing? I don't know anything about it. And what, what year yeah, was that, was, if you don't mind it saying? That was 2015. Okay. Uh, that was the, the fall of 2015. We were kind of building it from the ground up. So I, I was actually responsible for making one of the assignments. A lot of the work had been done also by a professor. Oh, he was a postdoc then. He's a professor at uh, NYU now, Joe Bono. He, they had put together an open source course for Princeton. And so there was a lot of material there, but there was a, a lot left to teach. And really, it was a challenge to find the right mix of practical versus theoretical, right? You can really get as theoretical as you want in blockchains. You can talk about, you know, the Poisson processes and statistical distributions of blocks and uh, try to formalize mining game theory and stuff like that. Or you can get as practical as having an assignment where students are writing Bitcoin script to do something. So we actually covered the full spectrum. Um, the assignment that I made was to parse uh, Bitcoin blocks for like op return data and other information to do blockchain analysis, clustering, just to understand uh, transaction, the transaction graph and how like, clustering heuristics work. That's, so that's fascinating. I mean, do you feel like the students got wrapped up in the computer science problems that you were trying to solve and the academia of learning how to interact with this protocol rather than you know, kind of like why when you, when you got to San Francisco, you were like, this is going to change the world. And they didn't really get that. They were just like, oh, this is a protocol I'm interacting with it. Do you, do you, Cause I feel like people approach Bitcoin from so many different places and that there's nothing wrong with any of those different approaches and people down, you know, with their head down in the code. Um, we need those people. And that's great. I, I feel like that that's a really different perspective. So did you feel like students kind of didn't really, see that whole economics piece of it? Or did you teach, try to teach that at all or what? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I think about this a lot. Uh, one of the, one of the things I, I really noticed there was that obviously it was very skewed towards the computer science side of things, right? Why is this interesting from a cryptography perspective? How can we take this, how can we take blockchains and apply them to other problems like that? And even though I, you know, at my heart, at my core, I'm an engineer, I'm a software engineer, the way I see Bitcoin is not really a technical revolution, more, more of a monetary revolution, uh, an economic revolution. And the, the, technolo the technology is, an, is a very critical detail, but it is not the foundation. You know, the, that's the opposite in academia. So it was very interesting, you know, seeing that. And I didn't spend too much of my time you know, trying to teach students about that side of things because it wasn't really the place for it because that inherently gets, I mean, it's a distraction from the coursework. You know, it's, it's hard to kind of include that in there. Yeah, but that was a very interesting dynamic to this. And it's still to this day, academia, I don't think has really fully gotten it because they don't really have the philosophical, they don't share that, those underlying philosophical ideas of kind of questioning money and, and sound money. They really are just approaching it from purely you know, theoretical aspect of cryptography and computer science. I like to think that there might have been at least one person in that class that at night was was staying up late and putting off doing coursework because they were so busy going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole because they were just like, holy shit, this thing is actually crazy. Like people don't realize it. There were actually. And it's funny. Um, one of my good friends was a student in that class. Uh, he's a good friend now. And he's uh, a big Bitcoin believer. And um, there, had, there were a number of folks from that course who uh, have gone on to start their own companies, uh, who've gone on to become major players in the, in the space. So they definitely do exist. That's awesome. 
Oh, I, I did actually want to ask you about the the private commodity money. That sounds really interesting because I was going to mention Liberty Dollars, but you touched on it already and said how that kind of just fell apart. Do you think that your idea for a private money backed by like a basket of commodities would would have been any different than than Liberty Dollars? I mean, do you think that legally you, you could have made that happen or was it just a pipe dream? I still don't know the answer. And I think, I'm not sure we'll know the answer unless someone really tries. You know, I think part of what got Liberty Dollar in trouble was the fact that they were just facilitating, you know, illicit activity potentially knowingly. I don't know the answer. It's one of those things where I think it's one of those lines that has to be crossed and tested to see what kind of pushback really happens. But the real challenge here, the real challenge is counterfeiting, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the issue that I see is unless you're just managing it all in your own database and you're getting everyone to just use your app and you're keeping track of everyone's balances, it's going to be hard to get adoption, right? Because you can't issue bills because if you issue bills, then they're going to be inherent. They're going to inevitably be counterfeited, but you won't have any legal recourse or the resources of the U S government and secret service to go after people counterfeiting your money. And the government's not going to waste their efforts going after them. So I think that it, there's just a lot of practical challenges there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's Bitcoin kind of fixes this, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the key is removing that central point of failure and making it counterfeit resistant. And because it's an open protocol and there's no single entity in charge of it, people are much more likely to adopt it. That's the genius of it all. I, I think the single biggest thing that people miss in regards to Bitcoin especially when you hear uh, the talking points like, oh, well, Bitcoin is cool and all, but it'll be even better once they have a a gold-backed cryptocurrency or once they have an oil-backed cryptocurrency. Um, The single biggest piece that people are missing is the vulnerability of third-party or security vulnerabilities of third parties, trusted third parties, which you're going to run into pretty much any time you you try to have a a currency that's pegged to anything. Um, You're always going to be trusting somebody that that peg is as they say it is, right? And that's kind of how we ended up in this mess in the first place. Exactly. And, and then you have to start asking, well, what's their business model going to be, right? Because let's say in theory that you have some commodity-backed money, okay? So you're acquiring these commodities or some at least derivative or, or note uh, that represents the, these commodities, and you're just holding that in full reserve for people to use as a currency. I mean, how are you making money, right? What, what, what's the business model? And I think, you know, one of the options is obviously to have it under collateralized, right? And you're just taking some off the top or you're charging some fees. It, it's unclear, you know, like, it, you know, what the sustainable business models around that would be. Okay. So river, right? You, you go through this journey, you become a Bitcoiner, you're in your stripes and, and here you are working on river. When, when did you guys found river? We officially incorporated February 21st, 2019. Okay. So still pretty new. Yeah, we're pretty young. I had been chewing on the idea for a long time uh, in some way, shape, or form. I was kind of jealous, I would say, in 2013 when I saw Coinbase and I saw them taking this journey of you know, building this financial institution around Bitcoin. I was like, oh, man, like uh, someone else did it first, but hey, you know, at least someone's doing it. Like that, so it made me happy that someone was doing it. And I thought, okay, well... Maybe someday I can work for Coinbase. Maybe someday if, they're, if, they're, if someone's going to take Bitcoin and, and make it the money of the world, power to them, right? And then around 2016, 2017, I started to see Coinbase starting to really kind of take some different direction. And, and I think a lot of us feel this way. 
and they started going in a direction completely away from where I thought made sense. And I thought, okay, that, that actually sucks. Like I was actually hoping Coinbase could be that company that really helped bring Bitcoin to its final destination. And I, re and I realized that they, they weren't. Uh, they were going to get stuck at this local maximum, kind of go broad across offering all these random currencies and really weren't building what Bitcoin needed. So I, but then I saw that, well, that's also an opportunity. Someone else is going to have to do this then. And I thought at this point, well, I have the, I have the network, I have the skill set to do this. So, you know, might as well be me. Yeah, I remember it, it wasn't even the token sale nonsense is one thing, but you look at the way that that distracts their, their mission statement, right? I mean, it, it detracts so much from the services that they do offer around Bitcoin. I mean, I remember in 2017, I, I think that they hadn't even implemented SegWit yet. And they were having all kinds of issues when it came to on-chain fees and, and wait times and then just onboarding users. And, and granted, I understand like 2017 was crazy and there was a lot going on and a lot of people were, were deceived by the token mania. But at the same time, Coinbase wasn't able to solve any of the problems that they had because they were just so spread out and trying to do so many things at once. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's easy to knock on Coinbase. I mean, but th there is fair criticism to be had. I mean, they really did neglect their Bitcoin infrastructure for chasing other you know, revenue streams from other, other tokens. And, and also, you know, to be fair, I mean, they're a private company. They can do whatever they want, and they're trying to optimize for revenue. I think it is rational. If you're chasing short-term growth, building a casino is a, an un a basically, you know, casino where you don't need a, a gambling license is a far more profitable endeavor in the short term than trying to build a conservative, this conservatively growing financial institution uh, to, with the goal of bringing Bitcoin, you know, banking services to the world. Um, I think long term, the latter is a far more profitable endeavor in larger company. But in the short term, you know, you can't beat a casino, right? The house always wins. So um, that I, I think the, there's economic logic in, in, in the direction they went as well. And it's important to remember that. Yeah, I can only imagine what it was like for Brian Armstrong and, and some of the others you know, at the top of Coinbase during the, the peak of 2017, they probably had so many people beating down their door trying to give them dump trucks full of pseudo securities to sell to their client base at, at probably significant profit to, to Coinbase. I can only imagine what that must have been like to, to navigate. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you know, you can't knock the, like, the Binance, the Coinbase, these business models are genius. I mean, they, they make a ton of cash. You can't just be, you can't be mad at that, right? It's just, you just have to say, okay, well, they're not doing what I want to, they're not building what I want to see exist. So I'm just going to do that instead, right? Uh, you can't just wait, you, just, you know, sit around being mad at these companies for trying to make as much money as possible. You know, that, of course, people are going to do that. I, I just do really think though, that they are missing the big picture. And that long term, it's economically rational to focus just on Bitcoin. Mm. And, and Bitcoin or River is a Bitcoin only company. Correct. Depending on, depending on how you define Bitcoin only, I mean, we also use U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, from a cryptocurrency perspective, yes. You said that you were interested in working for Coinbase and you saw him kind of mess it up. So what is Alex Leishman's vision of, of doing it better than Coinbase? I mean, what does that actually look like in practice other than just selling and buying Bitcoin? Yeah, so the, the fundamental mission of our company is to help Bitcoin continue on its trajectory uh, to become the de facto 
store of value and, and medium of exchange in the world. The easiest way to understand that is to say, okay, if Bitcoin becomes the world's money, then what does a bank built natively around Bitcoin look like, right? And what financial services do they offer? And some of those look very similar to financial services offered around fiat currencies, but some of them also look very different, right? And, we, and, and to be clear, we are not a chartered bank. We do not have a bank charter. So we, we are not a bank, but we offer financial services around Bitcoin that are similar to what banks offer around dollars. Uh, and, and that's the direction we're going. So, um, so I think it's easier to frame it in terms of talking about problems we're solving for people, right? So one of them is very easily acquiring Bitcoin and managing it and storing it and doing all of the extra work for the people that makes Bitcoin annoying. So tracking it, taxes, all that stuff, just making it dead simple for people. And then there's another insight you know, here is that most money isn't held by individuals. It's held by families, right? And money is really, and resources are really kind of, families are the, are the unit in society. And so how do, you, how do we build products that allow families to manage their, this new money, uh, Bitcoin? And so, you know, the way we're looking at that is looking at how banks do it. Um, joint accounts, uh, family kind of collections of accounts, um, make it very easy to buy Bitcoin for your kids uh, and store it for them for their, you know, for their future. And then on the other side of things, so, so kind of there's, there's one aspect of taking the very traditional banking services that exist for a reason and applying those to Bitcoin. And then there's the other side of it is, well, what can we do with Bitcoin that we couldn't do before? So a lot of that includes non-custodial financial services. So for providing financial services to people that allow them to completely control their own money, but also provide them the convenience of a financial institution, right? So an example of that is a feature we're going to be rolling out in the next month, which is a, uh, a hardware wallet account. So, you know, when you sign up forever, you, you automatically get a brokerage account, which is where you custody the coins with us and you can buy and sell Bitcoin. And then we're going to allow you to be able to open a, hardware wallet account or a non-custodial account where it reflects a balance in your hardware wallet. And we watch the blockchain for you, keep track of all your transactions. And whenever you buy Bitcoin from us and transfer it to your, uh, to your hardware wallet, we actually keep track of all that tax information for you. We keep track of all the um, cost basis and, and other data around that. So if you ever sell those Bitcoins someday, um, it's all there, it's all easy, but you're completely controlling your assets. So we're thinking along lines like that. I know I've asked you this question before, it was, it was off air, but the way that you're doing that is probably through uh, XPUB management, right? Correct, yes. So okay. we built our own Bitcoin infrastructure from the ground up. Phil Glassman, uh, our, our, our Bitcoin engineer here, has done an incredible job. Uh, we built our own custom Bitcoin wallet service internally. So. We've built a, we have a software service internally that can watch millions of different wallets. And so uh, when a user uh, registers their hardware wallet for us, we rescan the chain, pull in all their historical transactions, uh, generate the key pool for their BIP32 wallet, uh, and then we can uh, generate fresh addresses for them so they, don't have, they can keep their hardware wallet in a safe and deposit, easily deposit funds from River to their ledger uh, without having to plug in their wallet again. Uh, because we focus on Bitcoin, we can have all this special software that is capable of this. And then it, al it allows us to go broader across and um, build a lot of different features that other exchanges can't. Because imagine building that for not just Bitcoin, but 30 other different cryptocurrencies. It'd be a nightmare. And I think 
my audience would want me to um, get your your caveat on that, that it's, it's an optional feature, right? I mean, if I want, I can just buy Bitcoin on River, withdraw it to an external wallet and, and not use that service where, you're, where you have access to my XPUB and you're tracking all that information. Correct. Yeah. And, and you know, but the, also the way I would frame it is honestly, so it's, there's, uh, if you made a fresh XPUB just for your River withdrawals, right, that's basically the same thing too. Um, but yes, yeah, so you can just withdraw to a normal address as well. Yeah, we support that. We support Lightning. We support a lot of different ways to get your coins off of River. Let's talk about Lightning. Do you have any plans to uh, help get your users access to liquidity on Lightning or anything like that? Right now, we we have some ideas there of you know how can we make it easier for people to use Lightning uh, themselves and and custody their coins on Lightning. One of the ideas we've chewed on is you know, if our clients have a Lightning node through their account, they can just request some inbound liquidity and we can provide that for them. We haven't built anything like that yet. We haven't had strong demand for such a product, but maybe that's one of those things where we have to build it first. We have other ideas uh, around sort of this idea of like kind of pseudo custodial financial services where you control your coins, but we provide a level of services on top of that. Uh, and, and there's like sort of a some some trust between us. So for example, Let's say you have your own Lightning node, and instead of having to manage a ton of channels yourself, you just have one channel with us, and we have a really well-connected node, and you can pay kind of on the entire Lightning network through us. The other benefit to that is maintain. You can actually uh, generate invoices with our node, uh, with your with your River account, and people can pay the River node. And then you can withdraw from River to your node. So you don't actually have to reveal your node to other people, right? Um, you can use River as your proxy uh, mm -hmm. to receive Lightning payments. And you're trusting us for some time period to hold your coins. Um, but we actually you know, are, are, in a way, uh, providing you privacy, assuming you trust us. That's fascinating. Um, it, I, I feel like you know, somebody in your position, it must be both infinitely fascinating and terrifying to be on this new frontier of, like you say, building, you know, a Bitcoin-like bank. And the, so many of these things are going to be very similar to, you know, like what you said, traditional financial tools. But what you just described, I've never even heard of that before, but it seems like it would solve an, an excellent problem for, for people man, what is that like being on this, the precipice of this new frontier and, and having to try to figure these out and, and figure out what the market needs? And, and, and the timing of that is really important as well, right? Like when, you know, lightning isn't huge yet, but it may be you know, next year. So, man, can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's so many factors to juggle and that's what makes it hard. Um, one is just prioritizing. There's a million things we want to do and doing any one thing well is a lot of work. Um, even the simplest feature you see on our site, you know, there's probably a month of planning and engineering. And um, so a lot of it is just about prioritization and then, then kind of, but feeding into that is market demand and just even in, in, in consumer understanding, right? It's like you guys understand what I just said and you know, what I was just proposing, but how do we, how would, how do we communicate a feature like that? to the mainstream audience, right? Or are we just gonna build this thing and only have like five people using it after spending you know, a month uh, 
building this new system. Um, and so I think one thing we're waiting to see is, is um, uh, lightning, like kind of more, more lightning adoption. And part of that we see is on our ends, you know, continuing to make it easier and easier for people to use lightning, nudging people to do it, pushing people towards it. But, um, you know, there's only so much we, we can do. And uh, I think really it just a lot of it is working with the ecosystem, working with developers and trying around the Bitcoin ecosystem and trying to see what people are actually doing and, and support those use cases. Um, but yeah, it's not easy. And then there's also, of course, the regulatory side of things and balancing that. The thing that's interesting to me with Lightning, and not just Lightning, but Bitcoin in general, is that whatever you build, you have to build it well enough that people will want to use it through you. Because if you don't, they're just going to route around you and, and use the protocol in its open nature um, in other ways. Like if, if your service that you're offering me um, to use Lightning through your node, and I just have a node connected to you, uh, if, if that doesn't provide value for me, well, I'm not even going to bother. You know, I'm just going to use Lightning myself. It, it's nice there that you can kind of grease the wheels for people who are less technically savvy or just don't want to manage their own node, um, but want to have access to liquidity on Lightning, particularly to a little bit more of a trusted, trustworthy party than just some random wallet that they download off the App Store that's a, a custodial Lightning node. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think you made a great point. Um, and this is the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is you don't have to use us if you decide you don't want to. You can just route around us. And going back to kind of what does a Bitcoin financial institution look like compared to a traditional financial institution is, a, you know, I want to build a financial institution that people can trust, but they don't have to trust. And I want people to trust us. I want to earn that trust. But I also want to provide people tools so that if they decide they don't trust us someday, they're not stuck, right? They can go elsewhere and, or go nowhere, right? Just go to themselves. They don't have to keep their Bitcoin in this in, uh, corporate system. I think by building that institution, um, we'll win over the market, right? Um, because it also keeps us honest. It creates an incentive structure such that we can't, we, we can't become untrustworthy because people can just leave. So it really, I think, aligns, uh, aligns incentives uh, to, to build a company like this. That's, that's so cool to hear because we don't even, like we're so used to the legacy system that we forget that these are businesses that should be working for us, right? But we could just get trapped in them because there's, there's not a lot of options. You, won't, you have to work within the rules of the legacy system. But this is so new. It's such a new frontier that it's, it's really the, the beauty of the free market is on full display, I think, with what you just described. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, think, I, think it was, I think it was Nick Sabo on Twitter. He had a good quote. Or maybe it was Arthur, maybe it was Arthur Hayes in one of his updates. He said, if the, door, if the door in is bigger than the door out, then you need to be concerned, right? And uh, that's kind of how I think about things, is how can we make the door out as big as possible? Um, it's, it's never going to be as big as the door in, uh, in a regulated system, right? Because, you know, uh, we do have, uh, you know, you are always trusting us at some point uh, with your money, right? Um, but uh, how can we make that as big as possible? And that's kind of how I think about things. So, We've got quite a few Bitcoin-focused exchanges that have been popping up over the last year or two. I mean, Cash App roared onto the scene. 
Uh, they've been killing it. Uh, I recently yeah. deleted my cash app for, for personal and political reasons. Um, and, but then you've got companies like Swan coming on the scene that are just, you know, cranking out the memes and the pretty awesome podcasts actually, and, and building all these audiences of Bitcoiners. What makes River different from all these other, you know, we talked about Coinbase, but what makes River different from these other uh, Bitcoin only exchanges? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So by the way, big fans of Cash App, I mean, if anyone can help Bitcoin go mainstream, I think Cash App is, is, is going to be that app, um, especially among like the mass population. They are just absolutely killing it when it comes to adoption. I mean, their, their growth curve is off the charts. Um, but, uh, you know, Cash App doesn't work for everybody, right? Um, not, you know, um, they're, it's built for kind of, mass market, um, not, not like as sophisticated, uh, sort of investor. Right. Um, so I would say in comparison to basically cash app is a good for a person who's okay using cash app as their bank as well. Right. Um, but, but once you get over a certain level of kind of net worth, uh, you're not gonna something like that isn't as good of a fit. And so the way I would kind of position river is, our, our target market is kind of kind of the emerging affluence to the ultra high net worth individuals. Um, not to say you have to be wealthy to use River and and, and use our services at all um, by any means, but uh, that's kind of our target market, uh, and that is how we build this business model of you know high touch client services, um, kind of really professional financial reporting, and building all these cool. This is also how we kind of fund all these cool, kind of pushing Bitcoin to the next level that um, you know, these other companies aren't really doing as much. Um, they're mostly wrappers around third-party services and third-party custody and uh, things like that. Uh, because we do everything ourselves, we process the dollars, we touch the Bitcoin, we built our own Bitcoin infrastructure, we can support Lightning, we can support hardware wallet integration, we can support all this cool protocol level stuff down the road. Um, and yeah, so, uh, I think, you know, happy to like dig into more details there as well. But um, I think because we kind of control everything ourselves, we can offer a, a richer set of services. Do, do you find um, with uh, the clientele that you're speaking about that they understand this, this beast, like, like some of the people on Bitcoin Twitter do, or are there challenges there? And how are you guys meeting those challenges to help people understand this um, arguably pretty hard to understand Enigma. <laughs> you mean Bitcoin? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's, I mean, that's kind of how I, I would say, like, we like to differentiate ourselves. The, the way that I measure our success is one, are our clients referring other clients and referring their friends, right? Um, and, you know, if, if we're the, if we're the place when somebody asks a Bitcoin or where, where, where do I go by Bitcoin? Uh, I want to be that answer. I want River to be that answer. And the question is, how do we become that answer? Um, well, a big part of it is knowing that if you send your friend to us, they will be taken care of. And they're not going to come back to you and say, dude, why did you send me to this? Like, I logged in, like, you know, um, I couldn't talk to anybody. Uh, what, what is Bitcoin Cash? Or like, what is, a, you know, um, you know, why can't I get my Bitcoin? Like, you know, it's been like two months. Like, where's my, like how do I get my Bitcoin? Well, how do, why can't I just like buy right now? You know, there, so you know, when you come to us, uh, you get someone holding your hand if you need it. And everyone is coming in at a different level, 
right? We have people coming in who have computer science backgrounds, who know all about Bitcoin and are just looking to use River because they love what we're doing. And then we have, you know, the, the mom whose son told her about Bitcoin, said, hey, come to River, go to River and they'll take care of you. And, you know, we hop on a phone call with her, explain how, the, how it works, explain how Bitcoin works and, and walk her through it. Um, so that is, that is, I think, our real, you know, competitive advantage. That's, that's our brand is if you send someone a River, they will be taken care of. When I was first talking to Rod about you guys and he was telling us about your services, I was like, you know, I, I was looking at your website, I was kind of like, this this feels like the white glove exchange. That was the feeling I got when I first went to it. Yeah, that's the feeling we want to give. Um, we think there's, there's a big opportunity there. Uh, you know, if you look at how um, other, other companies started that took a technology and brought it to the masses, like like a Tesla, for example, right? They started building a really high-end roadster uh, and selling that to really rich people. They used that money to fund, you know, you know, cheaper and cheaper versions of, of, of electric cars. I mean, the way I see this is, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to focus on the higher margin market first and, um, you know, use that to grow the business in the early days and use that to build more and more Bitcoin financial products uh, and, and fund expansion. And you were on you were on Cheddar yesterday, and I watched the interview. And I, I know that there was an article posted about this. I, I want to say maybe it was CoinDesk, but I don't remember uh, about how you guys have a particularly large and growing boomer demographic uh, as clientele. Can you talk about that? Like, were you expecting that at all? And and how has that been to to kind of navigate? Have you gotten a lot of confused phone calls? Like, what's Bitcoin? Yeah. So you know. Uh, we, it, it, we expected to get some, but we did not expect to get as much as we have. Um, and I think it's because we've really kind of found a, uh, a need in the market, which is there's a lot of older folks on the side who have been on the sidelines who want to get into Bitcoin. It was just too intimidating. And frankly, the services often were just way too low quality for them. Um, these people are smart people. They've, they've saved their money. Uh, a lot of these people have a lot of money and they, are, they expect a certain level of service. They expect a certain level of sophistication and there just wasn't an, an institution that um, could service them and kind of walk them through, uh, get, get them over that, you know, uh, initial, you know, uh, intimidating uh, phase that people go through where they're trying to just understand how all this works. Um, a lot of these people have private banks and they can just call somebody and have something taken care of for them. And if they buy Bitcoin at Coinbase and they have $3 million of Bitcoin at Coinbase, they still can't get someone on the phone, right? So is, I think it, we, it, we just ended up kind of filling its gap in the market and the, they started coming and they, a lot of older folks tell their friends. And that's how we've grown that demographic. And a lot of it is also younger folks who send their parents our way because they know that if they send their parents to us, their parents are going to be taken care of and they're not going to have all these phone calls with, with mom and dad trying to walk them through the Coinbase, you know, UI, right? Um, mm. Yeah, same that's... with Cash App too. Cash App is, I mean, it's easy for like a digital native to figure out, but I can imagine if I showed Cash App to my grandmother, she'd be very confused. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure there's nobody at Cash App you can call, right? Yeah, exactly. Older people like talking on the phone. They like to know there's a person there. And I think when you have a certain amount, you know, I think people deserve that, right? If you're trusting a company, to hold your 
hard-earned money for you. You deserve to be able to talk to somebody there. Yeah, 100% agree. I, I want to make it clear to my audience that the reason that like we're, we're having you on today and we're, we're talking about River is because you guys reached out to us about our Ben and I's project, uh, WTF happened in 1971, interested in like a partnership of sorts. So um, I, I, I admire, you know, you guys for, for being involved in, um, I don't know if I would call it the, the, the community, cause I don't know that that's the right word for it, but, um, you see a lot of these Bitcoin companies that are kind of hands off when it comes to that type of stuff that, um, cause the incentives are aligned, right. And, and we were talking about this the other day in, in one of the conversations that we were having, but you know, I don't see Coinbase really involved in, in the Bitcoin community much. Um, and, and most Bitcoiners, like the, the Bitcoin maximalists, they hate Coinbase because of what Coinbase represents. But you don't see Coinbase really making an effort to make inroads into that community either. Um, they've kind of ridden the uh, altcoin train for all it's worth. But it's nice to see these newer companies that are Bitcoin focused and, and are principled on a lot of the same things that Bitcoiners are, which is why they're in Bitcoin to begin with, um, getting involved in, in some of the other stuff that's going on. And, and, you know, like I said, the incentives are in line. So it's not like it's, it's free by any means for, for either of us, uh, but it's nice to see. And it's, it's cool to work with you guys in that way. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I remember seeing your site for the first time and just thinking, this is totally genius. It is the, the, best way I've ever seen anyone distill um, kind of the complexities of monetary policy and the, the ideas of sound money and, and all this, you know, philosophy into a single question with a bunch of charts uh, that all just go wild in 1971. I thought it was just genius. Uh, so I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing and, and all of us at River are. It was an accidental success. It, we'd be lying if we said it wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, to your point, you know, I mean, I, I, I grew up, you know, in the Bitcoin community at this point. You know, it's been kind of defined my 20s. Uh, I'm 30 now. And, uh, you know, most of my 20s has been doing Bitcoin stuff out here in San Francisco. And I, I run the San Francisco Bitcoin developer meetup. So, you know, uh, I'm heavily tied to the, the development community. And uh, it's just, it's what I love. Yeah, I, I've heard uh, that the San Francisco BitDevs meetup is a place to be. We get a pretty good crowd. We're really lucky. Uh, it's, they're, not, they're not good because of me. They're good because of the, the people who show up. Uh, I, just, I just lead the discussion, but I don't, I don't, I'm not the meat of the conversations. And actually, San Francisco Bitcoin Devs was inspired by the New York BitDevs, which, uh, uh, which is a phenomenal meetup if you're ever in New York City. I'd highly recommend attending. Um, well, so that's pretty much all the questions I had for you today, uh, unless Ben had any other questions. Um, no, I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm really appreciate you taking the time, um, you know, A, to reach out to us and, and B, to come, come on and, and talk about what you guys are doing and, uh, and talk about Bitcoin because <laughs> I believe that's the future, man. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we know you're on the show. Thanks uh, so much for having me. We know you're a busy guy. Um, if there's anything else you want to hit on before we wrap it up. Um, anything, anything you forgot to mention or wanted to plug? Um, I mean, I, I love hearing from clients. I love hearing from people who aren't clients who, who might want to be and have some suggestions for things we can improve. So if there's ever anything that any ideas, anyone, any listeners have about what we should be doing at River, uh, any feedback, 
would love to hear it. Um, you can reach me at, at Leishman uh, on Twitter or Alex at River.com. Uh, love love to love to engage with everyone and, and have those conversations. Cool. And we'll put links to uh, to your contact information in the show notes. So any listeners that want to reach out to you directly can can get in contact with you. Um, Alex, been a pleasure, man. And we're definitely going to have you on again sometime soon. Um, time permitting to talk to kind of get more into the weeds about what you guys are actually doing. Um, what's going on behind the scenes over there. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Hey man, keep up the good work. All right, guys, welcome back. I hope that you enjoyed that chat with Alex. Don't worry, we will be having him back on at some point in the future to talk more about what's going on behind the scenes at River. Don't forget, if you guys want to check out River, please use our affiliate link, river.com slash BEC. That will get you one week of commission-free trades of buying and selling at River up to, I think, $10,000. So pretty good deal if you want to save a little bit of money and just test out their platform. I really liked using it. I would not endorse their product if I didn't think that it was quality. I've actually switched to using it as my full-time exchange. So I'm 100% behind them. And if you guys want to check them out, please go do. I think that they have a great product and they're offering a lot of really cool things. If you guys want to get in contact with me about the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, whether or not you have questions or comments or whatever, you can reach out to me on Twitter at HeavilyArmedC, or you can reach out to Ben at MrCoolBP. There are links to our Twitters down in the show notes below, or you can send us an email at BitcoinEchoChamber at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, go check out our newsletter that we started uh, doing every day over at WTFHappenedIn1971.com. You can find the link at the top of the website over there to subscribe, or you can just go over to WTF1971.com and see the archives of all the newsletters there if you don't want to fill up your inbox with spam. It's not spam. I won't spam you, I promise. But uh, if you'd rather just read it on a website, you can do that instead if you don't want to subscribe. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for listening. I always appreciate you guys that come back time after time uh, and have been listening to this show for a long time, even though I don't put out content as much as some of the other uh, podcasts out there. That's all I got for this one. Uh, stay tuned for Preston Pish and Jeff Booth probably sometime in July. That's going to be a heater. We're really looking forward to that. But anyway, until next time. Uh.